0: about children, how many of you have ever made a promise to your children, you intended to keep that promise, but in your best effort, you did not keep that promise? Anybody? Come on. Every hand, you don't have a child, okay. How many of you have been disappointed by your parents who didn't keep their promises? That's what I thought. You know, it's hard for us, even in our best intentions, to keep all of our promises, Because no matter how much affection we have toward those that we make promises to, and no matter what our best intentions are, we often do not keep those promises. Correct? Isn't it great to know that our Heavenly Father, God the Father, is a God who always keeps His promises. He always keeps His promises. And He enters into a covenant relationship with His people. And because of His nature, He is incredibly faithful. And in His faithfulness, He maintains and He keeps promises. Every single one of his promises. And when God promises, it's not only with the best intentions, but he puts all of his effort into fulfilling that which he promises. And he always does what he promises. But us, on the other side, we don't always live up to our promises. We don't always live up to our own expectations, much less God's expectations and the covenant relationship that we entered into with him when we came to faith in Christ. So what we're going to talk about today, God's people renewing their covenant relationship with Jehovah God. They were in desperate need, now that they were in the promised land, to renew that covenant relationship that they had with God and reestablishing their relationship with the Father as they occupied now the rest of the promised land. So let's look at Joshua chapter 8 and let's talk about this covenant renewal between God and his people in Joshua 8 as we complete the chapter beginning with verse 30. Now, I find six things that I that I've discovered in this text that help us understand how the people of God were led by Joshua to renew their covenant relationship with him. The first thing that they did is that God's people were desperate for spiritual renewal. I'm convinced they were desperate for God. They had a desperation in which they longed for and they desired to be renewed in their relationship covenant with God. They understood the importance of this covenant and they longed for it. They looked for it and they wanted to make sure that now they were at this point and this juncture in their lives, they were going to pause for just a moment and put the priority where it rightfully deserved in their relationship with God. They were desperate for spiritual renewal. Let's look at the first verse in verse 30. The Bible says, and at that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. Where? On Mount Ebal. Notice, first of all, there's a moment that is described here in the word time. This is the moment where the people of God now are going to set aside. They're going to pause in their occupation of the promised land. And they're going to renew their relationship. They're going to renew their covenant with God. A covenant is simply a bond, it is simply a a negotiation, it's a contractual agreement, it's a promise between two people, and uh, you make a covenant with God and God makes a covenant with you, and in that covenant relationship, God promises to do some things and you promise them to do some things, and this is an opportunity now for the people of God to renew that covenant. This is the moment that is appropriate for this response. God's people have walked across the Jordan on dry land. They have defeated Jericho, this massive city that intimidated them the first time they saw it. They have overcome the sin of Achan and the defeat of Ai only to now charge Ai and to see Ai because of the instructions and the provisions of God for Ai now to fall. The people of God now have a stronghold in the promised land. They now have some land that is theirs. They are occupying a part of the promise of God. And it's now at this time, this is the moment when the people of God are now going to renew their covenant relationship with God. And the reason why this is the moment is because there was a mandate that was handed down by God through Moses to Joshua and to his people in Deuteronomy 17, 27. Two chapters, Deuteronomy chapter 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 27, God speaks through his prophet and his spokesman Moses and hands down now this mandate and he says through Moses to the people, when you enter into the promised land, you must pause for a moment and take the time to renew the covenant relationship that I have with you. This is the moment. Why? Because it's mandated by God. God desires that his people pause before they progress any further to evaluate and assess their their." spiritual condition and to see that they are in need now it is a necessity before they go any further to renew their relationship and their covenant with him and I want you to notice the movement of the people they move from where they are in AI they venture about 20 plus miles north of AI to a, a mountain called Mount Ebal where God threw Moses in in uh in uh, uh, Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 27 where he says that they are to go to Mount Ebal and they are to conduct, they are to hold this massive celebratory worship service. Why would they go to the links to do that? Why would they pause the occupation of the promised land and evaluate and assess their relationship to do that? Because God desires it and I think they also are desperate for it. I wonder how desperate you are In renewing your covenant relationship with God. Is it what it ought to be? In an an assessment, and an evaluation of your covenant relationship between you and God, is there some aspect of your life that doesn't measure up to the requirements or the righteousness of God? Is there something that you have failed to implement? Is there something that you have failed to remove? Is there something that you have done that he has forbidden? Are there something that he's asked you to do that you've not accomplished or you've not done? Is there some thought that you're thinking, some emotion that you're feeling? Is there something in your life right now you can identify it? Well, you would have to say, in assessing my life and evaluating where I are where I am in my covenant relationship with God, there is a necessity for spiritual renewal, to renew my covenant relationship with him, to confess it, to lay it on the altar, to take this time to link up with God afresh and anew so that I can leave this place empowered by such a commitment. God's people realized that before they could progress from where they were and occupy more of the promised land, they needed to renew their covenant relationship with God. I'm convinced you cannot progress beyond where you are unless you evaluate and assess your spiritual condition and renew your commitment to the Lord so that then through that renewal you can move on into the fullness of the blessing that it has for you in Christ. Don't rob yourself of the bounty and the blessing and the provisions of God through a new covenantal relationship with him. How desperate are you for such a renewal? For such a revival, for such a restoration, to walk once again in the fullness of a right relationship with God the Father found through faith in his son. They were desperate for spiritual renewal. Secondly, they were devoted to faith expression. Faith is an expression, you know. Faith is not just something we profess. It's not just something that we claim. It's not even just something we believe. It is something that must be expressed in the lives that we live. Where James in the New Testament says that faith without works is dead. Faith expresses itself, not only through our affection for the Lord, but through the action of our lives. It's an expressive aspect of our lives. It is not just what we believe and what we possess, but it affects how we live for him and how we walk for him. Notice in the text in verse 31, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded the people of Israel, As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, burnt offerings to the Lord, and sacrificed peace offerings. Their faith was to be expressed, first of all, in their surrender to God. What were they surrendering? They were surrendering to the priority of God. God was was the priority now in their lives from this moment on. They, they were pausing their possession, their occupation of the promised land to sort of reset, to refocus, to re-gear up in their relationship with God and to make God the priority place or the priority position or the priority person that he needed to be. There are times, I think, when you and I, in assessing our lives, must, must come to the place and the point where we, in our assessment, realize God is not the priority that he ought to be. Could it be possible that Israel at this point, their priority was to, was to finally find some relief and some release in the promised land after having defeated two major cities and two major battles now to go, and not to make God their priority. I think sometimes it's more difficult to make God the priority of our lives after victory than it is after defeat. Because after defeat, we want to make God the priority because we, we're living in defeat. We've, we've made disastrous decisions, and there's devastation in our lives, so we're seeking God and we're wanting to make Him right. But in victory, they had just been victorious here over Jericho and Ai, and they now had occupied some of the... And it would have been easy for them to sit back and relax and say, No, we want to prioritize our relationship with God and put Him in the preeminent priority position that He rightfully deserves as our God and as our leader. And so they understood that. Not only were there surrender to God and making Him the priority of their lives, there was submission to the plan of God, and that He submitted, and Joshua did, and the people of God submitted to the plan of God. If you notice in the text, how do they build the altar? They didn't build it with man made things, they didn't take their own tools and, and carve out stones that would be exact and that would fit according to their specifications to so an altar of their choosing. God told them that you must seek out among the land there in in the valley between the two mountains, you must seek out the stones that I have prepared. Do not allow any, notice he says, do not allow any of them to be cut. Use uncut stones. No iron tool is to be used in the formation of this idol. Why? Because he did not want them to take pride in their own building of their own altar. He wanted to provide not only the sacrifice, but he would have provided the altar. He said, I don't want you guys to put any effort into what I've already provided for you. I've already got the stones exactly in the place that I placed them so that you can find them and then find them and you can place them where they need to go in the building of an altar in which you're going to put the sacrifices upon and offer them to me. And so there was a submission to God's plan. God always has a plan. And he's not so much interested in our plan, but he's interested in his plan. And it's us who must come to him and say, Lord, what is your plan? And as God reveals to us his plan, we then as a people submit to the plan that God has so that God can maintain the priority position that is rightfully his, which leads us then to the third aspect about face expression is that it was sacrificial. Notice that they offered sacrifice on the altar. They offered sacrifices on the altar. I feel like the, on Wizard of Oz, don't pay any attention to that person behind the screen. You know, when they were there, The Wizard of Oz, they said, don't pay any attention. Don't pay any attention to what's on the screen up there. <laughs> we're not quite there yet, but that's okay, W.R. We're still on point two. They offered sacrifice. A sacrifice that was pleasing to God. What kind of sacrifice? It was a sacrifice of atonement. Where they offered burnt offerings to God. Why burnt offerings? Burnt offerings were offered because of their sin. They wanted to become reconciled with God. They wanted to be in right relationship with God. So they took a lamb and they, or they took a bull or they took a dove and put it on the offering that, that they had built using the stones that God had given them. And on that altar they offered those live sacrifices. Someone representing the people went up and touched the bulls and touched the lambs or touched the doves. And in touching those lambs or those bulls or those doves, it was symbolic that 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 sacrifice was becoming an extension of themselves. Laying themselves on that altar and the priests would then take and slit the throats and the blood was spilt and then sprinkled around the, the altar of the sacrifice. Why? For the atonement of their sins. Not only were there burnt offerings, but notice there were peace offerings. And the peace offerings, I think, were an affirmation of the activity of God in their lives. The reason why they were there in the promised land and had possessed what, what they were possessing was because God had provided this for them. It was a recognition, if you please, that the reason we're here and the reason we have what we have is because Jehovah has provided it for us. He's granted it to us, and because of that, I am going to now then appreciate what God has given by thanking Him for what He has provided. What, are, what is a holiday that's coming up? It's called what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is more than just about a couple of Indians and some pilgrims getting together and, and slitting the throat of a turkey and having the first you know stuffed turkey for Thanksgiving. I heard the other day that there are some people that have different things at Thanksgiving. Somebody said they had spaghetti, and I heard somebody else say, well, that's nothing. We have lasagna. I don't know what you have. It may be some exotic animal as well or some other exotic food. But it it is a moment and a time for us to get around the tables of family to do what? To give appreciation and affirmation for what God has done and to thank him for the bounty and the blessing that he's bestowed upon his children. And that's what they were doing with this sacrifice with this altar is they were giving thanks, giving to God for what he has done and what he has provided, as well as offering unto the Father a substitute for their sin against him, so that they can then, as they continued on in the possession. Of the promised land, walk forward now in a right relationship with God. I wonder if we have such an expression of our faith in that we are willing to surrender to the priority of God. That if we, as we surrender to the priority of God, are willing then to submit to the will of God in every aspect of our lives, and then as we submit to his will in every aspect of our lives, to offer him a sacrifice. That is pleasing to him. I wonder if our lives are pleasing to him. Or doesn't it say in the New Testament that we are to be living sacrifices? That the presentation of ourselves before a living God, we are living sacrifices, giving our all to him. Is our worship, is our praise, is our sacrifice, is our offering pleasing to him? You notice in the text that they were desperate in spiritual renewal, devoted to face expressions. Thirdly, they were determined to elevate the will, and I think the word of God. You cannot have the will of God without the word of God. And notice it says in the text in verse 32, And there in the presence of the people of Israel he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Notice here in the text, it says here that this is the first time. This is the first time in the history of Israel where the law now is in a public place. It's never been in such a public place and public display before. The 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 tablet that God wrote the Ten Commandments on, what happened to the first one when he came down from the mountain? What happened to that? Gone. You had to go back on the mountain and get what? Second second copy, right? Written on stone. Uh, the copy now that they are they they're doing here, that are they're placing in this place of worship. Is placed upon stones, but it is, it is in a uh, cake with plaster. And then on the plaster, they then write out the Ten Commandments. They didn't carve them out of stone like God did, that God wrote them with his finger. They didn't do that. They didn't dare duplicate it or copy it the way God did. But they decided to put plaster over the stone, and they wrote out the Ten Commandments, and they put it in a priority position so that all the people, for the very first time, could see the law. They could see God's word. This is, this is the first time. It, it wasn't available to common people like us. Uh, more than likely, many believe that this was a copy that was copied from the law that Joshua had. And Joshua more than likely got his handed down from Moses when Moses died. And Moses more than likely was the only one that had a copy of the Ten Commandments. And maybe there were a few priests that also had a copy from Moses' copy. But there were only a few copies that went around. Not everybody had what we have today, a Bible in their hand. And somebody here not long ago went to China, I think they said, they went to China and they took a couple of, uh, some, some Christian literature and they didn't have enough Christian literature to get out because as soon as they got it out, it was taken from them. There are people all over the world today who do not have access to the word of God like we have access to it and who are longing for it and who hunger for it and who want it. Badly, and they'll take any aspect of it written anywhere so they can they can use it for themselves. And this is, I think, very, very key here in this incredible display of the Word of God being brought out in a public place. From now on, people can come to this particular place in this valley and can see for themselves. As they see it, they can read it, they can understand it, seek to interpret it and apply it, and live it out in their own lives. It's a phenomenal thing. And so we see here now the, the, the preeminent place that the, that the word of God has in this incredible celebratory worship service where God's word is preeminent. It is positioned in its priority place. Why? Because the people have never seen nor have they heard it in such a fashion. Many believe that this is the second reading of the book of Deuteronomy, by the way. Moses more than likely read the book of Deuteronomy to the public, and it hasn't been very long since he read it. Now Joshua's reading it in this incredible assembly of believers who have been gathered now for the celebratory worship service. How long do you think it would take to read, was it 35 chapters of Deuteronomy? You think it'd take more than 12 minutes? You think? I want to challenge you this week. Sit down and time yourself and see how long it takes for you to read the 35 chapters of Deuteronomy. I think it's 35. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. I know you will later. Go ahead and do it right now. I'm sorry? 34. Thank you. I stand corrected. Just, just for the note, there are no, no pastors infallible. <laughs> Only the word of God. Anyway, 34. I knew it was somewhere right into there. 30-something. I wonder how many places of worship today... Have 50 minutes of music and 10 minutes of preaching. And then we wonder why we have such a cultural shift in the church today. I've had people tell me, you know, sermons shouldn't be longer than 12 minutes. Really? 12 minutes? Is that your attention span? Then we wonder why we have the cultural problems in the church today. My marriages are falling apart and parents aren't parenting and children are are running rampant. The word of God has ceased to be the priority preeminent place that it rightfully deserves here. You know, when we get to heaven, there's not going to be any more Bible. There won't be any more teaching or preaching because we'll know everything there. But until we get there, I'm convinced that this is the model for worship. And the Bible should not only be centric in everything that we do, but its exposition, its application, and its calling us to repentance and renewal should take the priority place in the place of worship. And I'm convinced if a pastor can't get up and at least for 35 minutes expound and exposit on the word of God, he ought to just stay home. Because I can't see how you get enough out of 12 minutes of a sermonette for Christianettes. we become a spoiled culture today. You go to China and they, 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 they sit in little rooms with one light. And, and, and I've heard pastors go over there and they're in hiding. And there's like 75 people crammed shoulder to shoulder in a little room that's meant for 10. And, and he gets through preaching in an hour and a half and they want more. Keep preaching. And I think today what we have is we have a heart problem. And the heart problem leads to a hunger problem. The people of God are not only hungry but they have a heart for the Word of God and the Word of God becomes the priority, prominent, present thing that is centric in what they are doing and the Word of God must be centric not only in corporate worship but in individual worship as well. In our day-to-day, we must have a time and a moment where we open the Word of God and it speaks into our lives and I'm talking about more than just five minutes where we open a little devotionette for little Christianettes So say, I checked that off today. I don't count a devotion that takes five minutes. I don't count a devotion that takes ten minutes. And some of us need to get up a little earlier before we go to work so we can take time to spend time with God. And if you're not a morning person, then do it in the evening. But there should be a regular, habitual time when you open the Word of God and the, you, you hunger to hear and to know what the Word of God says and allow the Spirit of God to apply it into your life so it becomes the, pro, the pre- preeminent, priority, number one word in your life. And it, it needs to be elevated to the place that I think God wants it to be as long as we have breath and life here in this life. four, we need to be defined by public confession. Notice in the text that there was a public confession here. It says in verse 33 And all of Israel sojourned as well as the native born, and their elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount garrison and half of them in front of mount ebel just as moses the servant of the lord had commanded at the first to bless the people of the lord the participants here sort of jump out to me who are they they're everybody who's there all 1.2 or 3 million of them maybe more maybe a few less not really sure but there's more than a million of them they've all gathered together now between these two mountains There's a valley below. They have already offered sacrifices there. Now we see that in this valley, as six tribes are on one mountain and six tribes are on the other, in this beautiful amphitheater that God has created for this very specific purpose and moment in time, God created this. It was a beautiful amphitheater that God had prepared for God's people at this very moment. He brought them to this place in between these two mountains for this worship service. So that as Joshua read the word, he didn't need a loudspeaker system. It just traveled, so that everyone could hear the word of God as it was being read. And notice they were positioned each on all the mountains, and as they were looking down below, they could see the Ark of the Covenant in the valley below, and the priests surrounding that, and all the Dudas of the religious elite were there, and all the political elite were there, and. And Joshua and all of his armies and soldiers and officers and all of them were there. And all the people were there. Six tribes here and six tribes there. One point several million of them all gazing down as Joshua then opened the Bible. He opened the word and he read from the law. But what purpose were they there? Why had they gathered there? Why had they traveled nearly 20 plus miles north of Ai to get to this particular point? It wasn't to spectate. It was to participate. They were there to participate. And if you read Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 27, as he was reading the, the, the commandment of the Lord, all 1.7 million of them went, amen. Can you imagine how that would roar through that valley? I had a I pastored First Baptist Church Santa Fe not too long ago and uh, had a young man who came to our church after he... Uh, had a, a real spiritual encounter with God. His name was Ralph Jaramillo. Ralph Jaramillo was an interesting man. He's still my friend today. I haven't talked to him in a while. Did see him the last time I was in Santa Fe. Had lunch with him at, um, at uh, the Olive Garden with his sweet wife. Um, our, his daughter and my son actually were boyfriend and girlfriend for a while. Anyway, he joined our church at First Santa Fe. And Ralph Jaramillo was the kind of guy that he liked to say amen every time he heard something. That I said that he agreed with seriously you know the kite he was he he, he was saved at a fundamental independent Baptist church kind of got Kind of away from God a little bit, and then came back to the First Baptist Church of Santa Fe, and got really on fire for God. And, and he and I witnessed to a lot of people. We saw a lot of people saved. Uh, so many young Spanish Americans saved that I had people in my church wondering if we were going to become a Hispanic church because there were so many young Hispanics being saved in our church. And and uh, so anyway, you know, he'd, Amen, preach it. That's right, preacher, Amen. I mean, just like sixty times during a sermon. Seriously. And and guess what happened one one Monday morning? I had a visit from from some concerned church people. You know those guys? They set an appointment with the pastor. And they came into my office and we sat down. They said, Pastor, they said it kind of very piously. Pastor, you know, we love the Lord. We love Ralph Hadamu. But you know, you just got to do something about Ralph. He's distracting. What do you think I did? I think we ought to crucify the man. Let's do it right now. I said, you know what? I said, he may distract you, but he doesn't distract me. I'm not sure he distracts the Lord. And how rude it is for us to throw cold water on the fire that God has started in his heart. And as long as he wants to amen or whatever he wants to do to express himself or to participate, I'm good with that. And so should you. They walked away disappointed that day because, believe it or not, your pastor can't do everything that everybody wants. And Sometimes people will get disappointed and they'll say, I knew he wouldn't listen. I did listen, but I can't do what you want me to do. And how dare I ask a young man who's on fire for the Lord and say, don't do that. I wonder about our expression. Are we here as participants or spectators? I think us coming together corporately, we come together to participate, not to spectate. And we ought to participate in every song, whether we like the rhythm or not, every word whether we know them or not, just mum. Hum something. I've seen the choir do it. What do they tell them to do, Brother Andy? Watermelon, 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 watermelon. Just move your mouth and say watermelon. To the glory of God. God made watermelon. Participate. Don't spectate. Number five, they dedicated to biblical accountability. I notice in the text, it says, verse 34, And afterward he read all of the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. After they got all those people together, I can't imagine about three times the population of all of Wichita, God finally got everybody together and finally everybody in their place and everybody was seated. took a long time for that to happen. can't move a, a million plus people on, by foot easily on all these sides of the mountain so you, in this beautiful amphitheater that God has created. And all of a sudden, Joshua then begins to read. Notice the complete all of the Bible, all of the law. He read it all. There was nothing... too insignificant to say you know what that really doesn't matter there was no truth that was so minute that he didn't think to include it he read all of the law of God and of Moses took some time it was not only complete but it was consistent in that he read the blessing and the curses He not only read the blessing, but he read the curses. Now, in most places today, we would rather read the blessings rather than the curses or the consequences to disobedience. Tell me the good stuff. Don't tell me the bad stuff. Don't read about God's judgment. Don't read about consequence to sin. Only read about the blessings and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the kindness and the love of God. And yet he was completely consistent in all of it. And in this covenant relationship, God said, if you obey me, there are blessings. If there's disobedience, there are consequences. Sin has consequences. And there are some places today where the word sin is not even mentioned. If you never mention sin, how can you ever talk about the cross? There is no jot, no tittle singled out as insignificant or unimportant. He read from it all. How much of this is important here that you hold in your hand? How much? Now, are there some places you like better than others? Come on, right? Some places you gravitate to quicker than you do others? How about those places where there are a bunch of names there? Do you like that place? Huh? How about the places where there are Levitical covenant type things? do Do you gravitate toward those? No, we don't. But I think we need a healthy dose of all of them from time to time. Or you'll never have balance in your walk with Christ. Number six, number last, I could spend all day on that. But number six, they were driven to inclusive responsibility. Take a look at the end of the text. It says, there was, in verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not need read before all of the assembly of Israel. And the women... And the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them were present. It's interesting that he comments there in the end, everyone was there. The rich and the poor, the young and the old, the men and the women. Those that had embraced the faith who were not national Israelites were there. Through circumcisions and through professing faith in Jehovah God, we're also a part of this incredible, wonderful covenant renewal with God. But notice also the little ones were there. The little ones. We included them in the service this morning. They should never be excluded. And I think what he's conveying here is that all of us have an individual, personal responsibility where we stand before God accountable for our own lives. There is an individual accountability in which you one day will stand before God and God will ask, why should I let you into my heaven? No one can stand in that place for you. There's a day of accountability when each of us will, will be asked, what did you do with what I entrusted to your care? How do you invest what I gave you to invest in my kingdom work? And no one will be able to step in and answer for us. There's an individual responsibility where every single one of us must not only read, but we must understand and seek to apply what God has has admonished us to live out in our personal lives. Where we are individually, personally responsible for the way that each and every one of us lives out our lives in following Christ. But I think not only is there a personal responsibility, but there's a corporate responsibility here too in that there's something that happens when I get with other believers. Because the Bible says, forsake not this summing of yourselves together as a habit of some. So when we gather together in a place of worship and I stand next to somebody and I say, Yes, God, I commit, amen, I'll live that way. I've got somebody who's heard me testify, I've heard them testify, and when we walk out the door and I see them not living up to their covenant relationship with God, guess what, I put my arm around them, maybe around their neck, and I say, I love you, brother, I love you, sister, but you're not living up to your covenant. You're not living up to your commitment. And we somehow have lost the personal accountability to each other And helping each other in a loving, humble, giving, selfless way encourage and admonish each other to live for the Lord. I would hope and pray that if you saw me out there doing something that somehow denigrated the cause of Christ or or disgraced the witness of our church or the gospel that you would come to me and say, hey pastor. Not say it piously, but say, you know what? You did something that, well, wasn't really Christ-honoring, and I'd like to walk with you to help you. Maybe someone in your life group or your life group teacher, or somebody might say something or see something and come alongside you for a while, knowing that they must do it in humility because if they do it in any other way other than humility, guess what? Soon they too will fall, the Bible says, and they're going to need you to walk alongside them help encourage and admonish them to live for the Lord. There's a corporate responsibility and a personal responsibility in this text that is huge in them coming together and including everyone, everyone, young and old, male and female, to stand before God and to renew their covenant relationship with Him. So what does all this mean to us today? In short, here it is. This is the Mosaic Covenant, isn't it? But we're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant, are we? Come on, church, are we under the Mosaic Covenant? No. What was the Mosaic Covenant? Obey, be blessed. Disobey, get punished. Judgment, right? Their inability, even their best intentions and with their best affections for God, they would fall short. And in their disobedience, what would they do? They would offer sacrifices once a year on an altar in a city called Jerusalem, in the temple, in the holy place. And that animal, as they touched it, would become representative of them. The, the, lamb, the lamb or the goat or the, the, the dove, it was slit, the blood was spilt, it was sprinkled around the mercy seat. And as a result of that, their atonement for sin became a reality. We're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. We're under a new covenant found in Hebrews chapter 10 that says that the covenant now that we are in Christ is a new covenant where the once and forever final sacrifice was offered on an altar called Calvary, where he, the son of God, who was sinless became sin for us. He died on a cross for sins that he didn't commit. And as we place our faith and trust in him, his sacrifice alone becomes a substitute for us and giving us then a righteous standing before God. Our atonement for sin has become possible. And now we have a Beautiful relationship with God the Father who guarantees eternal salvation. Why? Because our salvation is secure and forever settled. You cannot ever lose it once you place your faith and trust in Christ. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit that guarantees that. And he writes his law on our hearts with the power of his Holy Spirit. And even in our best intentions in this new covenant for this wonderful sacrifice named Jesus who took him upon himself our sin against God, even with the best intentions and with the greatest affections, guess what? We fall. We fail. We sin. Right? Right? What do we do then? We confess our sin, 1 John nine. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what what the problem we have today, I think, is this, as we close, this whole covenantal relationship that we have with God. That yes, God makes a covenant with us and that he sent his son and we covenant with him when we place our faith and trust in Christ and, and he's faithful to keep that covenant and when we come to faith in him, he gives us a new heart a new mind, a new life, a new walk, a new everything. But yet, even our best affections and in our best it, Actions, we fall short of of fulfilling that covenant relationship. We come to Christ, He forgives us, but that doesn't give us a license not to just go, Well, whatever, whatever. I can't live it, so therefore it doesn't really matter. I'm no longer under the law, so therefore I can live any way I want to. Is that correct? Romans 6 1, God says through Paul, Should we go on sinning so that grace could abound? By no means. No. 1 John chapter 3 states to us that because we came to Christ and now we have a righteous standing, we should continue to walk in the righteousness that we have received through Christ. God deserves and he demands from us as believers a holy life. And even as believers, even though our salvation is forever and eternally secured, and we can never lose that, we can forfeit the blessings that are ours in this life through disobedience. And if we persist in disobedience, there are consequences to that disobedience. Illustration. You've changed smoke for 25 years and get lung cancer. Whose fault is that? Your body is supposed to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you go to the casino and gamble all of your hard-earned money away and now you can't pay your bills, that's a consequence, is it not? If you cheat on your spouse and you wind up in divorce, that's a consequence. You see, you're not immune to the consequences of sin. While you may be eternally saved and forever going to heaven after you die, we forfeit so much of the blessing that God has for us by simply not walking and living in righteousness. And the choice, he says, is ours. As we covenant with God, our covenant is, while our our, our, our eternity is secure, I still make the choice to live righteously, not because I'm trying to live righteously to earn or to merit or to gain my salvation. That's already mine. Not only do I do it because of love, that's not enough. But I do it because of my new covenant that's found in Christ. Short story and we close. I was with the grandkids this weekend and uh, seven Caden seven, um, Avery and Natty are five, and Cannon Knox. We call him Cannon Knox. Double word, double name. Cannon Knox is his middle name. Cannon. He he's thirteen months. If you have, and most of us in here know, any child you have under seven, dad's the hero, right? I mean, he's invincible. He's the hero. He's you know, it's when they get about seventeen they stop with those kind of concepts. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody got to get a witness to that? Yeah, when you go along the mall and all of a sudden your kids are walking in front of you not with you, then you know you've reached that stage, okay? So, they love their dad. I can't tell you how many times I'll watch their dad tell them to do something. And after the second or third, you better not do that. They do it. What's the consequence? Discipline. If God doesn't discipline his children, are we legitimate or illegitimate? there's discipline and consequence to sin believer there's blessing that we receive and consequences that we receive salvation's already guaranteed that's for sure but oh how much we forfeit by disobedience and so maybe today we need to renew our covenant relationship with him is that what you need to do today? Choices that you've made that have forfeited blessing resulted in consequences. He may not remove all the consequences, but he can sure give the blessing to those who choose him. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Each Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 10 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship service and a casual and relaxed setting. Our second worship service begins at 11 a.m. and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for adults and children of all ages are offered at 9.45 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.